Good afternoon, this is Gary Kamner here on TRSI. Today is Sunday, it is the 6th of the 11th, and I am here with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I'm right, very well, Gary. So before we start the episode, we received a couple of people, Michael, over the last while, questioning how your trip to Italy went, and when they can expect the Alcohol Club. Well, Michael, when can they expect the Alcohol Club? That's a very good question. We When we can, well, a number of things have to be sorted out, but one of the principal issues we're going to have to sort out is how to get the alcohol from there to here. Um, I, I kind of got tired of people saying to me things like, ah, well, you know, Brexit. Ah, well, of course, Brexit. Apparently, people tra- travelling over the land bridge now, getting from France into Dover, then Dover France, has become problematic. And several people said to me, oh, unless you're going, you're doing X kind of business, they're not taking on new business. Particularly something which is, what would you say, food, which attracts duty. There are transport issues. People are going the French route. They're going from France over to Ireland. But apparently, drivers hate that. And there is resistance to doing more of that also it costs them an awful lot more that's the other issue transport costs have gone through the roof it's not just the price of fuel but all sorts of other things apparently have affected it and the fact that it's costing more to go through england so i don't know um we are in negotiations the first the other problem will be there's no we well we want we wanted i wanted to do a kind of a tasting before we did this that people could order it may be it may be that depending on the level of interest, what we will have to do for the first round is just people will have to take it on trust that what we're going to bring over is good shit and they're going to just take it without tasting it. And they'll be provided with tasting notes online and descriptions. But it may, I don't know, it may not be... It, it may not be possible, certainly in short order, to do a tasting. But it is heartbreaking. <laughs> it is heartbreaking right, to see the value that's out there. Um, I went to one large, uh, shall we say, like co-op, a wine co-op in the hills uh, around Piacenza, where the, uh, in the in their principally in Valtidone and then some in Valtrebia. Anyway, they were they were showing. I was tasting wine there, Gary, which they were selling what they call at the cantina price, which is like the retail price to the public and we would certainly expect to get a discount from that but sparkling wines made in the Charmont method so not these are not like dosed with carbon dioxide good wines decent nicely well-made wine blank de blank which means 100% chardonnay and they were selling these wines out at a discount there no that was actually that particularly was discounted reduced down to 24 euro for uh, a case of six six that's four euro but Gary the the duty one of those bottles in this country would attract would be like I think is it six thirty seven would just by itself would be the duty and remember that you would add the duty to the price of the bottle to the cost of the, the transport and to the insurance and then you'd add your twenty three percent fat because the duty is vatable they just don't they just don't want us to have any fun at all. four euro for a bottle of I got, we had a bottle of a sparkling Falangina which I, I found in a little very small little place down in Campania uh, which was stunning and cantina price for less than six euro again. Yeah. Oh, it just it just make you cry. Now, the fact that I I actually caught COVID while I was doing this didn't help my tasting. I love when the government puts taxes on things and then makes those taxes vatable. That's a real like fuck you. We're going to do what we want. Yeah, that really is like we're going to get that's that's just we're not going to kick you. We're going to put steel. We're going to get boots with steel toe caps. There were bouncers in a discotheque when I was a very young 
person who are noted for their violence, Gary. And one of them used to wear deep sea diving boots. I don't know if you've ever come across a deep sea diving boot. Anyway, I feel like the government is basically the bouncer of the deep sea diving boots at that point. It's really just getting a good swing and a kick and they're hoping to break something squishy. Anyway, what's the news, Gary? You know, that, Michael, originally had a purpose that it was partially, like, the rationale for that was partially that because goods had been produced in the state and had used public resources, that the state could therefore charge VAT to it because there had been usage of public resources and it was a consumption tax. Mm. I think at the point we're putting you know, vatable taxes on things, we've kind of lost all sight of that. It's just, we can do it, so we're going to do it. Sure, what are tax anyway? You have to remember, Gary, it's been the first income tax in the United Kingdom comes in in Lloyd George's 1911 budget. Is it something like that? Yeah, and it is indeed an emergency tax. Income tax well, most taxes are. They are great examples of you know, the permanency of a temporary government project. But my, my, the reason I say that is because we're so used to the idea now of taxing income. When in fact, for many, many years, for a long, long time, the idea of taxing income was regarded as bizarre. I mean, actually kind of immoral. We are now in the position, and it's not just in Ireland, say most of the Western world, where you have that, what I call the Michael Noonan mindset. Noonan at one stage basically came pretty close to saying, you know, I, I'll allow I'll allow them to keep X or Y. I'll allow them to keep so much. Fundamental disposition is that the, the state owns what you produce and then in the goodness of its heart will make a decision about how much of that they will allow you to keep. I don't think it's overdramatic if you really get into that to see that the, shall we say that's an attitude which sees the citizen not really as the free shall we say independent citizenry of you know, Yankee folklore but rather a different kind of producer a different kind of economic actor the kind that we don't really we're not really supposed to think was a good idea they, we are where we are and and until the revolution comes, where we the where the blood of the accountants runs in the street, not the lawyers this time. Uh, we were we, that's where we were, were going to stay. I, I I I don't see any change on the horizon. But I could be, yeah, I know what you mean. That moment when I realised that the 23% was going on the duty on the bottle, I thought, Jesus, that's just savage. It's like death taxes, as the Americans say. You're, you're getting taxed because you were stupid enough to die. So we had said we would talk about the hate speech bill today. However, Professor Jared Casey, who I believe has a doctorate in law and a doctorate in philosophy, and a third doctorate, I think, in something else. Well, he's at least a couple of degrees in law. I mean, yeah, Ireland and England. And he has philosophy. He's a deep D-Lit. I don't know. He has a PhD and a DL and a D-Lit. He just keeps going. He has written an article. Yes, uh, I'll put a link to it below in Gript where he goes through it with a more sort of, well, it's both philosophical and legal eye, but um, his take is that the law is explicitly designed to freeze speech. Rather, so for those who aren't aware of it or aware of this distinction, there are things that, laws that make things specifically illegal and that is their intent, and there are laws that are designed to cut down on something, not through use of the law itself, but because fear of breaching the law will make you more careful. Yes. And his take is that this is a law that is designed to make you be a little bit more careful about what you say, Michael. Yes, he, uh, he, 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 it's it's kind of it's a sneaky approach because obviously I, they don't want to, and I suspect that if it was just a full face-on kind of law, they wouldn't be able to get away with the kind of speech restrictions that they would like to do. So what you do is.
is you make people nervous. And I think there's we are already working within a social context where people are nervous about saying certain things, not because they think that they are wrong or not that because they think they are actually hateful, but because they're, they're not exactly sure what the social rules are, what is considered to be a socially acceptable opinion to have because they don't drive the culture. They're not in charge of the culture. And they know that the people who are in charge of the culture have very strong opinions about this kind of stuff. So they stay silent. Now, the great advantage of that for those people who run the culture is that if everybody stays silent, then that means you get that wonderful situation where eight out of 10 people think the same thing. But each individual person thinks that they're the only one that thinks that thing because nobody else is saying it. They're not hearing it anywhere else. And by God, if they're the only one that thinks that they're going to shut the hell up about it because they don't want to be the one that's cast out into the outer dark because they have this terrible pariah thought. So as long as you can keep the, the subject quiet and keep people quiet, then you're grand because you don't have to worry because the problem is when they start talking to each other, Gareth, they start talking to each other, they may start realising actually they're not the ones in the minority, that their bad thought is actually the thought that everybody's having. It's not, one of the other things that Jared does is he refers to the, the sloppiness and the weird circularity of a lot of the, the phrasing. I, I don't know if we've heard it. Here's, I've just quoted you this. According to Section 3, Paragraph 2D of the Criminal just of criminal Justice Brackets Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Close Brackets Bill 2022 The word gender can refer to a person's gender, a person's expressed preferred gender, a person's identified gender. He goes, other than the possibility of gender being transgender or gender other than male or female, we're not actually told what gender is. Now, if you have a law where one of the most controversial parts of it is going to be is about the issue of gender and you don't actually you don't actually know what gender is that's it that, I would have thought that was problematic but I would also believe it's deliberate the one I noted when I was reading through and Jared also brings this up in his article is the definition they use of hatred so hatred means hatred against a person or a group of persons in the state or elsewhere on account of their protected characteristics or in any one of these characteristics that's not a definition that's uh, so there's no definition of, of hatred in the bill which is kind of problematic. But the one, actually, the, the other one, and this actually just kind of more annoyed me because of how they were selling it and how it was being produced by the media. They said that they were going to get rid or that there were issues with the subjectivity of some of the requirements and they were going to replace it with an objective test. And then this is what the test is. They're calling it the demonstration test. And this is how the government describes it. A demonstration test means simply that a perpetrator demonstrated hatred towards a member of a protected group or characteristic at the time of an offence being committed. How? Well, they say that might include, for example, the use of hostile or prejudiced slurs, gestures, other symbols, or graffiti at the time of offending. And this, Michael, in practice, will mean that by using a demonstration test, the prosecution does not necessarily have to get inside the mind of a perpetrator, prove the crime, but can use the demonstration test as an alternative method of proving a crime committed as a hate crime within the provisions of the legislation. So what they're doing there is they don't want a requirement to show that you had a hateful motive. They want to be able to do this. Problem there, Michael, of course, is the idea of an objective test of prejudiced slurs, gestures, symbols, or graffitis. Someone burns down a synagogue while spray-painting a swastika on it. That's, you could probably get that true. Someone says something that someone else perceives as prejudiced, or, do you remember when 4chan, Michael, made the OK symbol a far-right gesture? Yes, yes, yes. Whatever about it, my, my issue with it is this whole idea of we've created an objective test. No, you haven't. 
nowhere near a fucking objective test. And the fact that media are repeating it simply because the government says it is ludicrous. I mean, I think it would, it would be a very useful thing for, for journalists and for all citizens if they meet a politician to ask them very specific questions. Because law should be, for good law at least, should be predictable in its outcomes. It should be clear in its intent. And it should be open to the ordinary citizen. And or, you should, when you're passing a law like this, which I remember ignorance of the law is no defence in law. So the law must be comprehensible and intelligible to the citizen. That citizens the reasonable person should be able to understand whether he or she is not breaking the law or not. That is a basic standard. So, will it be will it be hate speech, for example, to dead name somebody? Would it be hate hateful to misgender somebody? So, if somebody does something and they use somebody's former name, their dead name, would that be a demonstration, Gary, an objective exam, an objective fact, uh, uh, demonstrating hatred, and therefore being for also being an enhancement as uh, uh, for, a, say, for a crime or assault or something like that. But it seems to be utterly subjective because whether or not that, consti- that constitutes a hateful act is itself a deeply subjective thing. But my real objection to all this at the end of this, the notion that you're making hate, this is thought crime. I mean, I mean, Jared talks about this, he gets this ultimately, that mm-hmm. if you make hate illegal, what you're doing is you're not making an act, something which is an act, uh, illegal. And that was the one of the great leap forwards in modernity when instead of making notions or desires or intent or indeed beliefs illegal. We actually said, no, you can only be prosecuted for doing things. We're now going back and we're saying, and that you're either punishing people for feeling something, it's either an emotion or it's a thought. You're hateful because you think certain things about people and that will be illegal. It will be illegal to think certain things about certain groups of people or it will be illegal to feel them. Now, I think that is an absolutely aggressive thing to do and I also don't understand how it can be intelligible as a crime within our criminal system. Here's one that I actually have a particular problem with and I haven't heard really discussed. Uh, I don't think Jer goes into it either. And that's section 10. The offence of preparing or possessing material likely to incite violence or hatred against persons on account of their protected characteristics. If you are found with material that can be deemed to come under this act or this section, like for instance, Michael, you know, let's say you have the wrong kind of book. Yes. Uh, you can be facing two years in prison. Might be your book. You just, it's it basically, it's treating books that, again, that's by the way, it seems to be Gary, a subjective standard here. Absolutely subjective standard. But also, it's basically treating these books as uh, like pornography, that you've been found in possession of images. It doesn't matter. I mean, if it, but in that case, well, at least we have, we have specific objective standards by which we can judge. Are these people under the age of 18 They're under se- or the age of 17? They are minors. Are they engaged in any number of 17 different acts? If that's the case, then this is sexual activity and it's illegal. And they're minors and it's illegal. This is child pornography and you go to prison. But this is, you say, material. Is this a book by Jordan Peterson? Is this, would Helen Joyce's book be the kind of material I am absolutely certain that in Helen Joyce's very, very fine book, you could you could t- abstract from that out of context sentences that some people would look and say that's transphobic. I have no problem believing that. Well, what we have here is we have a one section, section eleven, protection of freedom of expression, which says any material or behaviour is not taken to incite violence or hatred against a person or a group of persons on account of their protected characteristics or any of those characteristics solely on the basis that that material or behaviour includes or. In 
involves discussion or criticism of matters related to a protected characteristic. That is going to be a very interesting one to see how the courts take that. Because they can take it narrowly, or they can take it broadly. And it kind of has this sort of, well, we needed to put in something for freedom of expression, so here's four lines. But that could end up being quite impactful. But I am against any law which could imprison someone for several years based on having access to particular books, pamphlets, uh, anything, audio recordings. And I mean in all cases, whether that is Islamist material, whether that is racist material, whether that's far-left material... Do we want to imprison people because they possess a copy of Mein Kampf? I mean, you could argue that that is a, um, I think your defense in that case, and it would have to be your defense, is um, is that Mein Kampf, under the terms of this act, could be argued to have a genuine contribution to political discourse. Well, I'd, I'd, like, to have, I'd be, like to be there when somebody made that argument. Weirdly enough, here's the thing. they um, When they're talking about material and, and a defence of saying it, it contributes to literary, artistic, political, scientific, religious or academic discourse, it's weird they don't include historical discourse. Mm. I, I imagine they think it comes in under academic, but it would have seemed important enough. Anyway, we have talked enough about something which I suppose we, which you said we weren't going to talk about because Jared Casey's going is doing it. But I would, I would say, advocate, gentle listener, go and read uh, Jared's piece on things that probably are being talked about at too great the length. Michael, when we were putting together, going through the papers to try and put together what we would talk about today, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. Twitter. Endless. Endless seas of coverage of Twitter. In ways that don't really make sense, because no one really knows the details of what is happening inside Twitter. So there's this just wave of assumption about how things are being done. But beyond that, it really shows how involved Irish journalists are with Twitter, and how linked in they are with it. And it's bizarre, because I don't imagine the public gives a shit. You know, I'm on Twitter. I use it as a bubble. I have. I don't look for I just only have people on that I know and I like and I don't care. Once upon a time I used to use Twitter the way people use Twitter. But it's just comedy at this stage. Okay, we you say we do. We know certain things about Twitter which led to these savage sackings. It's losing four million a day. That's a fairly nuggety fact. Four million a day, like over a billion, well over a billion. It's losing. So that you know, that, that calls for action. I do they all hate Elon for some reason. And but Gary, surely there is no finer, more delicate, more beautiful and indeed more comic ballet than the sight of the outraged liberal dancing as he almost exits Twitter, but never actually gets off the stage. The number of people saying that they, you know, happily expected that t- Twitter was going to turn into a horrible, toxic, racist hellscape, and they weren't going to wait around. As far as I'm concerned, Gary, Twitter is a toxic hellscape. Uh, I, I don't see how where it could go. And you know what? There's block buttons, there are mute buttons, there are all sorts of things you can do on Twitter to make sure that you don't actually have to hear anybody else's ideas because that obviously is hurtful and defensive to anybody and I, I, I understand that. But go! If you're going to go, go the fuck! Oh, and then, no, did you see uh, when the, the N, uh, CNN or NBC or somebody had a big story on the news which was a list of celebrities who had left Twitter. I had not heard of one of them. Now, Politico had a, a similar thing, but for you know, EU mandarins. But there, there's two things, actually, about the Twitter deal that are interesting, which I haven't heard talked about. The first is this. When we're talking about Twitter losing millions a day, part of that, 
Now, Twitter wasn't profitable when it was bought, but the purchase of Twitter was leveraged buyout. Yes. So the uh, the debt was massively increased by that. For those who aren't aware, a leveraged buyout is basically where you, you purchase a company and then you pass the debt of purchasing the company onto the company itself because you own it. So, like, why not? And the second thing which comes immediately from that is that Twitter is going to pay on the money they had to raise to uh, to buy itself uh, over a billion dollars a year. So you want to start talking about like what's going to happen to it? Whatever is required to pay a billion dollars a year in payments. That, that's what's going to happen to it. Including getting Stephen King to pay $8 for his blue tick. I saw people complaining that um, Musk may have broken some employment laws and then I went and looked at what the the actual penalties were. Like not informing the minister of mass layouts is a fine of two hundred and fifty thousand euro. Employees who are not consulted for the appropriate amount of time can go to the I'm not sure if it's the workplace relations court or, or, or what it is here, but you can get up to four weeks. Of, if you're dealing with trying to pay off a billion dollar interest, none of that matters. I've given them three months. Wages. I would suspect what's happening is is they will be put on gardening leave, technically still on the books, and they'll get around everything that way. But they don't want the people having getting back to the office and having access. It seems very clear they do not trust uh, their staff. No, they really don't. <laughs> they really, really. Everybody was was locked out of their systems immediately. The one I think we should be paying more attention to is not. Twitter, because who gives a shit, really? It actually is. It's quite impactful on journalists. Well, that's the problem, though, Gary. And that's the thing that nobody's talking about. Well, the problem of Twitter is the fact of what it's used. It's used by journalists. And this is an example of you know, feeding the hand that bites you, as from Twitter's perspective. Journalists now go to Twitter to find out what's happening, because it's easier than actually going to find out what's news. So, in a sense, whoever can control the, the most effectively the Twitter noise can generate what the news is. Actually, I saw to MSNBC, there was a piece they were doing, a, a TV piece, and they were talking about, well, if these changes to verification happen, you know, and someone comes out and says something about the election, how are we meant to confirm if that person is actually an election official? <laughs> Call their fucking office? Yeah. Like, do so Don't believe everything you see on the fucking internet, people. Yeah, really, really, seriously, that's what you're doing now. Do some journalism. Pick up a phone and ring an office. But that's the the, the problem is the relationship with journalism and how it has degraded journalism. But anyway, that's all on. The one I think that's more interesting is the stripe layoffs. Yes. Although actually there was a there was an article in the Irish Times about it entitled "Workers Pay the Ultimate Price for Wide of the Mark Strike Growth Expectations." You're like, what? Did they they take them behind the shed and shoot them? Like they got they got fired. Yeah, but Gary, do you not think that whoever's writing, who it's the sub-editor, whoever's writing the headlines in the Irish Times at the moment is going through a bit of a moment? Because in the Twitter case, you had RTE said Twitter to lay off X thousand of employees. BBC said Twitter engaged in mass layoffs. The independent uh, Twitter to sack hundreds and whatever. And the Irish Times, Twitter culls thousands of employees. Pulls them, Gary. Going around with a humane killer. Boom, 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 boom. I've got to say, Michael, I very much appreciate the Irish Times taking a strong stance on improper acts towards staff. You know, firing them in just just manners we would not support. And I'm sure that's going to be an incredibly warm comfort to Paddy Agnew. 
<laughs> who, if you remember, Michael, whereas the uh, Rome correspondent for the Irish Times for about 30 years. Most of my life, in fact, I remember reading Paddy Agnew. I very often would wonder at times if I was living in either the same city when I was, or indeed the same country when I was, just as Paddy was, because his reporting was, I think he had different friends to me, put it that way. But he was for a very, very long time. He worked with them for about 30 years, and then, um, (laughs) what was it they told the court? That he was uh, a freelance writer and had never actually been the Rome correspondent of the paper. No, no, he'd never been the correspondent. He'd gone out himself under his own steam, and he'd sent them initially... It was football. He he reported a bit on football, and then he'd send them the odd bits and pieces on. But he was never the Rome correspondent. Now, the weird thing about that is I have this really strong memory, Gary, of reading the Irish Times back when I was a teenager. And it would say Paddy Agnew, Rome correspondent. I'm obviously misremembering that because that was not the case. Even though he had worked almost, I mean, not exclusively, but almost exclusively at times for the Irish Times, and everybody thought he was their correspondent. He was not in fact their correspondent at all he was in a, under Italian tax law what they called a libre professionalista free a f- professional freelancer yes because he didn't join what was it he didn't join the um, the Italian um, journalism union and I don't know why Gary because just as a side note to anybody's in out there considering it you get all sorts of extra books you get discount on plane tickets discount on train tickets access to sporting events and football matches you get really good stuff if you're a journalist initially. I don't know why he didn't. It was very strange. Then again, maybe. Now, obviously, this was this was a small time ago. Not that long, a couple of years. But I can't, even if they never themselves refer to him as their Rome correspondent, other journalists in the IT routinely refer to him as their Rome correspondent. I'm sure that there were, I'm sure there were, there are moments when he was actually, he was described as that. I'm certain there were. Or I saw Isla Shohanlon on Twitter, <laughs> someone who's also a former employee of the Irish Times, saying, that um, she found out she was fired from the Irish Times when she went in and found she'd been locked out of everything. And she, in her tweet, she says, "Now I I know that happened to me as well. Who was it? Oh yes, the Irish Times. So you know, but that was a different Times, a different Irish Times under different management." different editors. It wouldn't happen now, Gary. But the the reason I think Stripe is interesting is because of what Stripe is. It's a payment processor. If they're laying off people, saying that they misjudged how how much internet commerce there's going to be over the next few years, that would indicate that they expect to see, should we say, Michael, a slowdown in that part of the economy. And given that that part of the economy is nearly all of the economy at this point, that would indicate they expect to see a recession. Also, Stripe is not a badly managed company. It's like Twitter was known for being sort of very weird internally and having just massively oversized departments in certain areas. Stripe has this thing where it, it seems to be shockingly easy to go to them with some ridiculous idea and they will give you money to write about it or set up some sort of um, you know, journal of some type. And they seem to do a lot of like moonshot stuff like that. But the, at a base level, they were not badly managed. Stripe is a business. It is a business. It has prof. It has it has a product. It makes money. Twitter has never made money. It's never been. It's never been clear to certain people. I I don't know enough. I don't have opinion. But I know people who have opinions about this. Who notion? Who have said that the trying to find a way of monetizing Twitter has become the great the sort of the King Solomon's mines of the internet. And some people don't think it's ever going to be solved. But I just want to 
quickly get in on the record with a doom prediction. I think that uh, the fact that Stripe, and not just Stripe, are laying off workers in this economy, in this country, Gary, should be a little bit of a worry for the government and a bit of a canary in the coal mine. We had, what, a 7.6 billion? Or is it 6.7 billion? We had a very large budget surplus this year, which I hope to God they're going to use pay down debt and stuff like that, rather than to put any of that and annualize it into spending because that's what we did the last time and that didn't work out well. We ended up with uh, a spending for an economy which was 20 to 30% bigger than the economy really was. But Gary, did you see in Stripe laying off people, right? Twitter also, Dublin-based company, laying off lots of people. There was a story this week of a office building off Stevens Green, a nine-story office building, which has applied for permission to transform itself into residential because they say they have not been able to attract tenants. Now, some people might say, well, maybe they really want to be residential all the time and they're overpriced and they're too dear. Or may, I would, this is the first time in a long time, Gary, when in the context of business tenancies in Dublin that the question hasn't been, we need more space for business, for offices. I, would, I know you might say, well, we're now post-COVID and a lot of people are working from home. Home. A lot of people are working from home all the time and people have downsized their total amount of office space and you have people doing three week, three day, two days. And so you got office sharing going on. And maybe that's true. But I just wonder if that isn't a, a worrying sign that if we're work, if we're going into any kind of a contraction in the tech, we are in this economy peculiarly exposed. It has protected us at other times. This time, if it's if it if if there is a tech specific contraction, which is harder than the other contractions, we may it may not be a fun time for us. It may not be a fun time for Dublin. However, there would be good news, Gary. All those foreigners with their big fancy jobs that are driving up the price of houses. They'd all go home. We could all have lovely houses of our own for much less money, which would be great. I think on that incredibly positive note, Michael, we should call it uh, for this week. Next week, we will have the results of the uh, midterms. Well, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Oh, before we go, sorry, Gary, before we should advert to the fact that there is uh, an opinion poll out, uh, which shows nothing in particular of any interest. But I did want to refer to one thing. Ain two, led by Parito being in this uh, poll, are now up to 4%. And I, oh, I could be wrong here. I don't think they've been 4% before. And what's even more fun, Gary, is that puts them ahead of both the Green Party and the Labour Party, both of whom are on 3%. Now, if that was to persist to be the case for a little while. I'm sure we can confidently expect that the media, the print media, the radio and the television news media will react to that and give aim to the kind of coverage that they would give to, say, the Labour Party or to the Green Party. And I'm sure you agree with me about that, Gary, that you would confidently expect that to happen. I mean, at this point, where I've already said we'll wrap up the episode, I will agree with nearly anything you say, as long as there are no follow-on questions. <laughs> Okay, no follow-on questions. We will see you next Sunday, where I will be uh, recording from Taiwan, I believe. Oh, yes. You're becoming more pro-Chinese? More pro me being in Taiwan, having lovely Chinese food, and you staying here, but there you go. Well, I mean, if you want to take the 15-hour flight, you can have it. As long as I get... Bar- we're supposed to be finishing this. You said... Anyway, we're supposed to be finishing this. Uh-huh, Say goodbye. Uh-huh. <laughs> All the best. <laughs> Bye-bye.